So we're taking the summer to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is that part of the Old Testament that we call the Hebrew wisdom literature. Um, we think it was most likely written by Solomon, the king of Israel. So uh, Solomon lived and ruled in the ninth century BC, um, which means that uh, the questions that were being asked and the, the struggles that were being struggled with um, were the things that people asked and struggled with uh, about 3,000 years ago. And the amazing thing is, it's the same stuff that college students and songwriters and philosophers and filmmakers um, and just people struggle with today. Um, one of the lessons of, of studying ancient wisdom literature is you learn that people um, are basically the same across the generations, and no matter what culture you're in, the same kinds of questions get asked. So last week, we introduced a word that shows up all through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, some translations use the word meaningless to translate this Hebrew word. Um, some translations use the word vanity to translate the word. The most literal Hebrew translation, though, would be the word vapor. Just like uh, your breath on a cold winter day, the idea of a vapor, which implies at least two things. First of all, um, it means that everything in life seems to be temporary. So just like you exhale and you can see your breath, and then a couple seconds later it's gone, um, even things that feel like they should be stable in life wind up kind of dissipating and being gone. And then another implication to that is just as you couldn't grab your breath if you tried to, um, every time we try to really grasp or understand the meaning of life, it tends to elude our grasp. So this idea of vapor or, or um, ungrabbableness or temporariness uh, comes out throughout the book. So listen for that today as we continue reading in Ecclesiastes. So Solomon was passionate to find meaning and happiness in life. And today, he talks about one way that he tried to go after that. So let's look at the passage. And actually, we're going to look at two passages today because they look at basically the same theme. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. So here's what Solomon wrote. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And then in chapter two, he picks up the same theme. Listen. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, 
a chasing after the wind. This is God's word. So two main points today. I just want to talk about pursuing wisdom, and then I want to talk about redefining wisdom. Pursuing it, and then redefining it. So let's begin with pursuing wisdom. Um, It's interesting because in all of the Bible, the person who is most renowned for his wisdom is who? Solomon. This is his deal. This is his claim to fame. And probably the most famous story of that um, is a a, a story that's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3. Some of you guys know the story. Um, While Solomon was king, there were two women, both of whom had uh, an infant son and both of whom were living in the same home, right? And so they come to Solomon for, for advice, for help, for, for a judgment, because one of the women claimed that the other woman, while she was sleeping, inadvertently rolled over and smothered her infant son to death. But then while everyone was still sleeping, she swapped her dead baby for the other, ba- the other woman's live baby. And so she was accusing her of that. And the other woman says, no, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't smother my son. I didn't switch any babies. And they looked at Solomon and said, you have to solve this. And so this is the the famous story that Solomon called for a sword, and he said, there's only one fair solution here. We'll cut the baby in half. And so both of you can have one half of the baby. And upon hearing that, the baby's true mother said, no, give the baby to this other woman. Do not harm the baby. And the other woman said, no, 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 neither of us should get the baby. Go ahead and cut it in half. And upon hearing all that, Solomon said, this is the true mother, because the true mother would never allow her baby to be hurt like that, even if it meant giving the baby to somebody else. And the case was solved. That's a pretty pretty great response, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. So Solomon was this street smart, savvy. He knew how people think. He knew how humans process things. He was also well-educated in more of a formal sense because he grew up in the household of a king. So the point of all this is Solomon was as qualified as anyone ever has been um, to try to understand life from an intellectual perspective. He's a sharp guy. And under this first point of pursuing wisdom, he talks about three different things. So first, uh, he talks about its scope. Um, In verse 13, Solomon specifically defines the realm. He sets out the parameters of this search that he was undergoing. So he says in verse 13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And then in verse 14, he says, I've seen all things that are done under the sun. So remember we said this last week that Solomon uses that phrase, especially that second phrase, under the sun, um, a lot of times in this book. And so here's what he's saying. I limited my search to the things that I could see with my eyes, to the things that I could perceive with my senses. So I'm talking about empirically observable, provable things. And that's why, in case you weren't here last week, that's why we have a goldfish on the stage. And he looks a little different than last week. This might be a different one. I won't tell you how many got flushed this last week. But we do have a goldfish on the stage. And the point is, his world is very limited. Um, his world is limited to what is around him in in this fishbowl. And so that's supposed to represent this under the sun concept in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me that King Solomon of Israel didn't have God as part of his worldview? And it seems like a strange thought, right, of all people. And, And here's what I think the answer is, is that in Ecclesiastes, he's talking about a time in his life either when he was really doubting his faith, that's 
possible for pretty much anyone, isn't it? Or, and or, it was a time when he was so confident in his own intellectual ability that he tried to make life work without any assistance from God. And so the way he was conducting the search at this point in his life did not have God in the picture. It was simply things under the sun. And because of that, Solomon, I think, is a great example of where our culture is rapidly moving. Um, some of you guys saw this maybe about three or four weeks ago. A big study came out from the Pew Research Center, um, and it said that there is a growing group of people that basically say, I have no religious affiliation. Um, I simply don't believe in any kind of religious faith system. I reject this, the, the concept of faith. That is a, an accelerating group of people in our country. And many of those same people would say, the only really reliable way you can know anything is through science. Right? That's the only thing that you can really count on. Um, great spokesperson for this is Peter Atkins, who used to teach chemistry at Oxford in England. Listen to this little quote. He said, there's no reason to believe that science cannot deal with every aspect of existence. So even though Solomon, of course, lived well before the age of modern science, it's basically the approach that he was taking in this pursuit. He says, I'm not going to rely on some outside supernatural source. I'm going to leverage my mind and my education and the power of human reasoning to find meaning and happiness in life. But when he threw himself into that, he quickly discovered, maybe not so quickly, but he eventually discovered that that approach has its limits. And he expresses that in two ways. The first way is in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, what is crooked cannot be straightened, which is a very poetic way to say life is confusing. It's not all neat and straight. It's sort of twisted up. It's confused. Um, and, and there are questions in this life that even a brilliant, educated person like me still hasn't been able to kind of sort out. There are things that just can't be straightened out. And then he says, what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, this main thing that I was searching for, ultimate meaning in life, even after all my searching, it was still lacking. And you can't count or, or, or add up or build on nothing. <laughs> Does that make sense? So the main thing I was looking for is still lacking, and I can't build anything on that. I can't count up anything on that. He also expresses the limits of the search in chapter 2. So look at chapter 2, verse 16. He says, For the wise, like the fool, will not long be remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. It's just depressing, right? He's saying when you think about it, you could have a really educated, brilliant person who really does know a lot about the world, and then you could have somebody who just kind of, you know, sits and watches reality TV all day. And at the end, the same thing is going to happen to them. They're both going to die, no matter how wise or foolish they were. And it's true, right? No matter how wise you were, one day, your heart's going to stop beating, and they're going to put you in a box, or they're going to burn you up. Those are your two options, by the way. <laughs> and then pretty soon, after a few generations, you will be forgotten. And a happy Sunday to you. Unless maybe, you know, generations from now, you know, your ancestors are doing some kind of a genealogical family tree, you know, research project for school. And, you know, maybe my great-great-great-grandchildren will look at their parents and say, now, who, who was this Dave Gustafson? And their parents will say, I don't know, just do your homework, you know. 
He's gone, long gone. Ultimately, will be forgotten. So the most brilliant learning and thinking will not unravel life's biggest questions, and it won't help us to avoid death. And therefore, when that's the realm that we function in, um, here's how this affects us personally. Let's talk about its end result. And since we're, we're looking at these two passages, the one in chapter one and the one in chapter two, the final verse in both of those passages sort of sums up um, where it leads. And so the last verse in the chapter one passage, verse 18 says, here's the conclusion. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. What a poignant thing to say that in some ways, the more we learn about life, the more we learn about the world, the more sadness we will have. And if that's true to some extent, that means that sometimes the most brilliant and educated people will be some of the least happy people. It's like they know too much. Ernest Hemingway once said, happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. And then at the end of the second passage, in chapter 2, verse 17, here's his conclusion. So I hated life because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I'm trying to catch this, this vapor and grasp it, but, but I can't do it. I, I've come to the point where I hate this. Really interesting opinion piece written in the Harvard student newspaper about two years ago. Uh, February 2013 issue. Uh, of, of the Harvard Scarlet, I think it's called. And the author, who was an economics major, was trying to figure out why Harvard students have higher than average rates of depression and suicide. And his theory was, it's because they're so smart. And so he quotes, in this article, he quotes something that Woody Allen once said. Listen to Woody Allen. He said, it's very hard to keep your spirits up You've got to keep selling yourself a bill of goods. And some people are better at lying to themselves than others. If you face reality too much, it kills you. And then after quoting Woody Allen, this Harvard student writes, my hunch is that being intelligent makes it harder to sell yourself a bill of goods. So you see what he's saying? You getting depressed with this? You should be. Less intelligent people Less intelligent people who don't know as much about reality can kind of deceive themselves and distract themselves. We talked about distraction last week and kind of tell themselves it's okay, that life will work itself out. It has some meaning. But really smart people know better. They look at the universe and they look at, 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 their, at their own gut and, and they just feel, they say it just has no meaning. And that realization is so terrifying and so empty to them that it leads to depression and sometimes leads to suicide. Because with much learning comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. So we have this little terrier cockapoo mix, and I couldn't find a good picture of our dog, so this is just kind of a similar, a different color. But her name is Maggie, and Maggie is a great dog. Um, not all that intelligent. And um, I, I think I say that objectively. Um, a couple of years ago, we put in a little doggy door right next to our sliding glass door that leads to the back, backyard so that Maggie can go in and out. You know, we don't have to always open the door for her and do it. So, you know, it's a great, great concept. The problem is um, she uses it sometimes, but about once a day, she stands in front of the sliding glass door waiting for us to open it. 
And she just stands there and looks at it. And we walk over and we say, Maggie, use your door. And she just kind of looks at us like, you know, use your door, the one you've used hundreds of times in the past. Use that one. And then finally, she'll go over to the door and look at us like, hey, look, a little dog-sized door right here. <laughs> I mean, she, she's like, remember Dory on Finding Nemo? She forgets everything she ever learned every day, and she has to relearn it. It's kind of what a dog is like. I mean, you see what I mean about not being that smart, right? But my dog is so happy. That dog, I mean, it's all, she's always wagging her tail and licking people and, you know, chasing squirrels. She's absolutely content and absolutely happy. Um, here's my point. There's a part of me, and I think there was a part of Solomon that thought this. I'd rather be dumb and happy. Right? I mean, I'd, I'd rather be like my dog, dumb and happy, than smart and miserable. Because that way, I wouldn't know any better. And I would live out my life in blissful ignorance and when all my Ivy League friends are worrying about global warming and geopolitical peace and the emptiness of life, I could just say, whatever, dude, you know? <laughs> Let's just go to happy hour, you know? <laughs> so maybe that's the answer. Wisdom is overrated. Stop thinking so much, and you'll be happy. As tempting as that is, I don't like that answer. Because in my heart, I know that wisdom is not a bad thing, right? I know that learning is not a bad thing. And, you know, sometimes Christians have a reputation for being a little anti-intellectual. Sometimes Christians have this reputation for saying, I don't care what science has discovered. I don't care what research has found. I'm going to stick with the Bible. That's a, that's a dangerous, foolish attitude. Because if we're really interested in pursuing truth... And if we have confidence that scripture is truth and that science is a pursuit of truth as well, then we should be incredibly grateful for things like chemistry and biology and physics and these other beautiful tools to help us discover how God's created the universe. Um, a lot of you came last week and you heard Jennifer Wiseman, the NASA astronomer, who sees no conflict at all between the pursuit of truth through science and the pursuit of truth through scripture. Right? They, they, they work together. It's made her faith actually stronger. So if you read this carefully, Solomon is not saying knowledge and learning are bad. He's saying they're incomplete. And so maybe if wisdom and knowledge are leading me to this dead end or leading me to this place of depression, there's something I must be missing. And so let's talk about the second main thing, redefining wisdom. Remember the way that Solomon defined this search? He limited it to things that you can prove with your natural perception, with human reasoning under the sun, right? That's the scope of, of his search. But remember, we said last week, God actually chose to enter into our confined little world in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And in the teaching of Jesus and in the pages of the Bible, we are encouraged to step into this larger reality. Specifically, the New Testament defines wisdom much differently than Solomon did in Ecclesiastes. And the classic place that that's talked about is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. So listen to this view of wisdom. Where's the wise person? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, according to the Christian faith, the essence of wisdom is not how much you know, it's whom you know. The essence of wisdom is not a philosophical system, it's actually a person. And so Paul, who was an incredibly educated man himself and wrote this, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That's the center of our message. That's the core of wisdom. Jesus giving up his life on the cross. And so if I can see that, and if I can make that personal and make that the center of my life, then I'll have this, this kind of wisdom that the New Testament is talking about. Well, why? I mean, why does Christ crucified? What does that have to do with being wise? And that's a whole sermon series in itself, but let me just give you a couple of, couple of quick thoughts. When I realize that, that Jesus came to do that for me, I realize that there is a God who knows me and who loves me, so my life must have value and meaning. So it's not just a vapor. It's not meaningless. When I realize that my problem was so serious that somebody needed to die for it, it makes me profoundly humble and aware of my own capacity for darkness. There's wisdom in that. When I realize that God was satisfied with the death of Jesus in my place, and based on that, he forgave me completely of all the ways I've offended him, it makes me quick to forgive the people who offend me. It shapes the way I, I feel about when people do me wrong and offend me. When I realize that Jesus didn't stay dead, but that he rose again on the third day, it gives me hope about the future, um, because even though I will also physically die, just like Solomon reminds us, I know that's not the end. And we could go on and on. Do you see how Christ crucified, that concept, has the power to change the way we think about life? And Paul says, look, in some ways, that message, if you center your thinking on Christ giving up his life on the cross for us, for some people, that will sound so simple, they'll think it's dumb. They'll think it's foolish. It'll be a stumbling block to them. They'll go, that's it? Some people will be offended by that. But it's the essence of real wisdom. Now, let's be totally honest. What I just said, all those things about Jesus crucified and how it defines our life, I can't prove any of that. Like scientifically, I can't prove it. Um, that Jesus is the missing piece that we need in our lives. I can show you evidence historically for the life of Jesus. Um, I can give you historical support for the reliability of the New Testament documents. Um, I can historically talk about the unlikely survival and growth of the early church in the first few centuries in the Roman Empire. I can point to ways that I've seen Jesus affect the lives and families of people I know in incredibly positive ways, but I can't prove it. Ultimately, there is a step of faith of saying, I'm going to believe what I can't entirely prove. Not a blind leap, but a step of faith. Some of you have, um, have read Jan Martel's book, uh, Life of Pi, or seen the movie. Story about a little boy who survives a shipwreck, and he winds up on this little lifeboat with uh, a tiger and some other, some other zoo animals. And in the book, the very profound book, the main character, Pi, says that there are really two ways you can look at life. 
you can view it as sort of a closed system with no supernatural involvement, everything limited to what we can prove and what we can verify. Or you can choose to embrace what he calls the better story. You can recognize that life just doesn't make sense without a larger perspective in which God is behind it and God is involved in it. That's the better story. And even though in the book he doesn't land on a purely Christian view of reality, he makes a very valid point, and that is the nature of this life that all of us have been born into, Solomon was born into it, here we are all together. The nature is all of us have to choose which story we will embrace. Now, does that mean that if we embrace Jesus Christ as our meaning, as our center, that all the mysteries of life will be solved? All the uncertainty will go away, all our questions will be answered? No, but they will begin to look different. I love the way C.S. Lewis summarized this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. So when Christ is at the center, life just looks different. You don't have all the answers, but you do have personal value and you have a self-knowledge about yourself and you have forgiveness toward others and you have hope toward the future to name just a few things Best of all, you have an actual relationship with the living God. So please hear the warning of Solomon. Even if you have an elite education, even if you have really high IQ and just a high uh, level of intelligence, apart from God, that will not make you happy. It will not make you satisfied. In fact, it might lead actually to misery. So if you've been feeling some of that, some of that emptiness, some of that longing for what's missing. Maybe what, it's your, what you're feeling is you're feeling God calling you to consider the better story, the story of Christ crucified for you. So let's close together. Would you rise? Let's ask God to take what we've looked at today and through his Holy Spirit, just work it into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so grateful for the brutal honesty of the book of Ecclesiastes, for putting into words what so many, as a, so many of us have felt. And Father, I pray especially for those who truly are intelligent, for those truly, who truly are educated, Lord, that you would help us to see that learning and education are, are great, great things, but that they won't get us all the way there. And we need something from outside. We need something more than just what's in this world to find the pieces that we long for in our life. And Lord, I pray that you would just make Jesus Christ so real and so near to us and give us the wisdom, Lord, to put Christ at the center and find joy and completion in life. Lord, I pray that we'd be honest in our searches and I pray you'd show us yourself to us clearly. Lord, would you bless those who are here, especially those who have been feeling that emptiness and that despair. I pray, Lord, that you would fill them today with hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. <laughs>